So in honor of God's word, if you are able, would you be willing to stand? As I read Acts 27 through 12. I'll be reading the NIV version. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. You may be seated. It has been a, an extreme pleasure and honor to open God's word with you these past weeks. And as we turn our attention one last time to what God would have for us uh, in his word, would you, would you pray with me again real quick? Um, Father, we come before you and we thank you that you are a God who speaks and who moves among us. And so, Father, we ask that you would do that. As we come to your word, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would comfort us, you would convict us, that you would conform us to the image of your son. I ask also for me, Father, that you would take these these words of my mouth, these meditations of my heart, that they would be pleasing in your sight. You would use them to glorify yourself among us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Once, there was a tortoise and a hare. And the hare was a rather uh, quick animal and liked to rub it in his neighbor's face. And eventually, the tortoise got fed up and said, you know, I'm a lot faster than you think I am. And to prove it, I challenge you to a race. And so when race day came, the tortoise and the hare lined up and the starting pistol, or whatever woodland creatures use to start races, went off, the hare dashed out in front of the tortoise. And wanting to really humiliate his neighbor, he decided that he had a good enough lead that he was just going to take a little nap. And where the, the tortoise would walk by, he would spring up and finish the race. We all know how that story goes, right? But the tortoise slowly and steadily runs past the hare, and he wins the race. And the point of that fable is that the race does not always go to the swiftest, and neither does a victorious Christian life. The race does not go to the swiftest or those who have the best start. And so this morning, we want to make sure that we understand who the race goes to. Uh, This morning is our last sermon in this series, Mind the Gap. We have been looking at how we as a church can bridge where we are with where God is calling us to be. Our desire is to intentionally pursue Jesus' calling to be witnesses and ambassadors 
for him. And that's, that's why we have been taking steps together to bridge the gaps that keep us from doing so. And I believe that we, we have been sprinting well. But as you and I both know, we are not in a sprint. We're in a marathon. And so the question before us is, how do we keep going? How do we continue to take intentional steps toward Christ's calling for us? And to do that, we need to make sure that we are bridging the vigilance gap. And so this morning, we're going to look at how we can do that by turning our attention to Acts chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12. And from our text, I'd like us to make three movements that kind of follow like your basic sleep cycle. Uh, first, we'll be looking at you know, drifting off to sleep. Secondly, f- um, fast asleep. And finally, waking up. So our text in Acts chapter 20 is really part of a larger section that we could call Paul's farewell tour. Paul has set his sights on returning to Jerusalem, and as he journeys there, he is stopping at different churches that he's had an instrumental role in. This is the last time he's going to see most of them in person. And so you can imagine that he had a few things he'd like to share with them. And that the church in Troas, we're told that Paul talked on till midnight, which, which sounds horrible to us. It's, it's really not quite as bad as you think, because all of their services were evening services. Uh, because the Christians were primarily of the working class, they didn't get Sundays off. And so they would gather together at night to worship and, and share a meal and, and open God's word. But these night gatherings still kind of seemed a little suspicious to, any, to an ancient listener. It was commonly wondered what those Christians are doing in there. Uh, perhaps they're practicing incest because they love their brothers and sisters. Or, or maybe, maybe they're eating the flesh and drinking the blood of young people. Uh, young people like Eutychus here. Uh, Eutychus, whose name means lucky, shows up for the church service and he positions himself in the very back of the room. He uh, sits by the window. And as luck would have it, Eutychus falls asleep as Paul talks on still longer. And that's when Lucky gets really unlucky because he, he falls out of the window. He, he takes the equivalent of a two-story nosedive and is taken up as dead. And you would expect a, a commotion to arise among the congregation, but none of that happens. Paul just walks down, takes him in his arms and says, he's fine, uh, and then goes back upstairs, eats a meal, and keeps on preaching till daylight. <laughs> it's, a, it's a crazy account, and, and, and it, it really a seemingly random one at that. Uh, on the surface, it just seems like one more run-of-the-mill miracle. But I want to propose to you that Luke is trying to do more in this account than simply record what happened. See, remember, Acts is a, a charter document for the early church that it served as a way for Luke to instruct the church on how to be the church while detailing what happened in the church. And, and that, that can be difficult and a little far-fetched, seem a little far-fetched to us because the text doesn't explicitly say, this is a teaching moment. Uh, but, but it does in its, its own way. Uh, there are a few pieces, three to be exact, three clues that show us that Luke is uh, intends for this to be an instructive moment, not just an informational one. Uh, the first is that this event takes place not at night, but at midnight. 
Midnight in Scripture is typically used as an indicator of your devotion. For example, the psalmist in Psalm 119 arises at midnight to praise the Lord. It's an expression of his devotion. And if you can remember when they used to do this, midnight movie premieres were also a demonstration of devotion, weren't they? Because the average person was not showing up at midnight to see the newest Star Wars film. No, that was for the devoted people, the diehard fans. Midnight is a time for devotion. And the context of our passage reveals that that this group is devoted to God's word. That's why they're coming together at this late hour. All of them, of course, except Eutychus, who doesn't seem to share their devotion. Instead, he is dozing off in the back room, or in the back of the room, rather. But maybe we should cut him some slack. I mean, he probably worked a long shift in the field, and then he shows up at church, really hoping that the pastor would keep the service tight. But unfortunately, there was a guest speaker, and the guest speaker did not know the rules. The guest speaker went on, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on. And so, of course, Eutychus falls asleep. We need to understand that Paul's preaching uh, is not what we think it is. Uh, it's actually a clue that something more is happening in our text. Did you know there are four types of, of sermons or four ways that you could preach in the first century? And what Paul is doing here is called a homily. And a homily was unique because it was not a monologue, it was a dialogue. The congregation would engage with Paul. They would interrupt him. They would ask questions. They would disagree and argue with him as he was speaking. It's shocking for us, but that's how an oral culture would engage and remember what was being discussed. And so Paul is going on and on late into the night, not because he's rambling. It's because the audience is engaging with him, but not Eutychus. No, no, Eutychus has fallen asleep. And that's really the final clue that our text is, that something more is happening in our text, because sleep is typically more than sleep in Scripture. Sleep is often used metaphorically to, to represent moral laxity or, or, or spiritual dullness. Uh, we see that, for example, in the story of Jonah. Uh, remember back, when, when Jonah decides that he's not going to, know to go to Nineveh, when he gets on the boat, what is the first thing he does? He goes to sleep. And it's not because he's tired. It's a way to demonstrate that he is disengaging from what God is calling him to do. And when we put all this together, we see Luke is trying to warn his audience about the dangers of disengaging with God and his calling on their lives. And he's using the account of Eutychus to do so. Now, in case I haven't been clear, I'm not saying that this account didn't happen. I'm not saying this is purely metaphorical. I'm saying that Luke has two goals in sharing this account with his audience. On the surface, he wants to record what happened, that everything was above board with that Eutychus event. But on a formational level, he is using it to call his audience to remain vigilant, to watch out lest they too fall asleep. And it's sleep, a lack of vigilance that creates the final gap that we're going to look at in our series. Like Eutychus, we disengage from God, his word, and what he's trying to do in us and through us. And when we slumber, when we are fast asleep, it sets us up for a great fall. 
Now, like, like the freedom gap we looked at last week, this gap is a conditional one. It really only shows up in our lives when we are experiencing momentum, when we are pursuing Christ, when we're engaging in his word. In other words, we're doing everything right. And when we have these rhythms and habits in place, we begin to think that everything is okay. And, and, and this, this gap slips in in a bunch of different ways. Uh, it might slip in um, because you got bored. You've been in the same place for a while, and you're, you're good. You're disengaged a little bit. Or, or maybe something just seems more intriguing or interesting, like um, the Super Bowl. Uh, or or um, maybe it's an external factor. Maybe the kids aren't sleeping, and so you just don't have time or the energy. So, so we assume we're fine. We, we throw it on cruise. We stop being vigilant in our pursuit, and our slumber wrecks it. And, and I think at the root of our, our lack of vigilance, of our, our spiritual disengagement, is our pride. It's the assurance that we've got all of this figured out, that, that now that we have these practices in place, or now that we are in this stage with our walk with the Lord, we're good. We're good. But the, the, the data suggests otherwise. Uh, Howard Hendricks, who was a, a Bible professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, conducted a, a study on ministry leaders who experience moral failure, and he confined it to a, a two-year period. And tragically, he was able to find 246 men who, in that short period, uh, committed uh, some type of, of sexual moral failure. These were guys who were fully committed to running the race, and yet each one of them fell. And as he's interviewing these 246 men, he, he found a few common threads. None of them were involved with any type of personal accountability group. They, they didn't have a community. E each had ceased to invest in a daily personal time of prayer, scripture reading, and worship. And without exception, each of the 246 were convinced that moral failure would, quote, never happen to me. And if that's true of pastors who we, we would assume it's easiest for their lives to be committed to following Christ, how much more is this true for us? For us to think that we don't need a community. For us to think that it's fine if we don't have time for the Lord this week. That other people might struggle here or there, but not I. It's our pride, our, our self-assuredness that leads to our slumber and downfall. And, and part of this arrogance that, that leads to this slumber is the, the way that we view the Christian life. Uh, you can throw the first slide up. See, we, we tend to think of the Christian journey, and rightfully so, as a, as a, as a race, as a journey. That there's a, a clear starting point when you surrender your life to Christ, and there's a clear end-finish line when you see him face-to-face. -face. And as you run the course of the race, you can see the progress you've made. And so you look back and say, wow, look at how far I've come. I can slow down. I can take a break. I can take a nap. It's fine. And while this is a, a, an accurate picture of the Christian life, there's also a different angle to it. It's not just like running a race. It's also like being on a Stairmaster. Um, the, the old 
nature is constantly trying to pull you down, to keep you where you are, and we have to take intentional steps toward what God is calling us to be. Because what happens if you stop moving on the Stairmaster? You don't stand still, do you? You keep going back until you fall, quite spectacularly, I might add. And so here's what Luke is trying to get across. Be careful when you think you are doing great, when you think you are standing, because that type of self-assurance is what leads to your downfall. And as we come to the close of this series, I worry that myself, that all of us, we are primed to fall into the vigilance gap, that we as a church have been intentionally engaging with God and his word. And several of you have shared with me how God has been shaping and forming you during this time. But now that this all coming to a close, the temptation for all of us is going to be to throw it in autopilot. And Luke is warning us that we need to stay vigilant, to stay awake, to press on. So how do we do that? How do we wake up, or, or how do we remain awake? Because there is a wrong way to do it. If on one side of the spectrum we have spiritual disengagement, on the other end of the spectrum we have spiritual hypervigilance. Uh, hypervigilance is, is a, a symptom of, of post-traumatic stress disorder that's defined as a state of constantly assessing threats. Individuals who suffer from it are, are constantly anxious because their well-being, they believe, is completely dependent on them and them alone. Now, I'm not commenting on causes and cures for physical hypervigilance, but it seems to me that spiritual hypervigilance is rooted in the same thing our spiritual disengagement is. It's our pride. The individuals who suffer from spiritual hypervigilance seem like they're always on alert, that they're, they're always trying to do more, and, and it, it actually seems like their pursuit of the Lord is commendable. But their vigilance stems from pride. They think to themselves, everyone else might fall asleep, but not me. Mm -mm, I'm not going to disengage. They think that if they finish the race, it's because they did it, because they themselves got across the finish line. Vigilance becomes a means to prove their worth. And perhaps that's what led Peter to assert that he would never disengage, that he would never abandon Jesus. Oh, sure, the other disciples might, but not him. And we all know how that went. Mark tells us uh, in his account of the Garden of Gethsemane that the disciples, including Peter, Peter, uh, fell asleep. Not once, not twice, three times. They were seemingly incapable of remaining alert. Even though Jesus kept exhorting them, kept waking them up, and telling them to keep watch. And maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you feel that disparity, that, that despite your best efforts and intentions, you will eventually fall asleep, like the disciples before you, or, or you are, are running yourself ragged into the ground, trying to stay awake. And that's because we are predisposed to slumber. Our, our sin, our mistrust of God, leads us to disengage from him, to believe that, that finishing the race is all on us. And it seems like we are destined to failure and death. But the disparity comes 
from not seeing what Jesus is doing in this scene in the garden. See, we typically notice Jesus exhorting the disciples to wake up, do more, be vigilant. But what we miss is that Jesus remains vigilant on their behalf. Jesus keeps praying. Jesus keeps interceding for them and for us. See, a succinct way to explain the gospel is that Jesus lived the life I couldn't live and died the death I should have died. On our own strength, we can't live a life that's pleasing to God. Jesus did. He was able to experience the temptation to disengage, to to do things his way. He's also able to resist the temptation, to remain vigilant and attuned and committed to what God had called him to do. And that has major implications for bridging the vigilance gap. Um, I'm turning over to Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, I'm reading verses 15 and 16. There we're told that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, Jesus changes everything. It changes the way that we pursue God. We we don't stay alert. We don't remain vigilant because we are afraid of condemnation or punishment, that if we somehow fail, then we're we're ruined. No, we, we do so because we have such a great high priest and even a mediator for us. We do so because we have experienced the love of God. And this, is, uh, this difference, this change, I think is illustrated quite well in the film Chariots of Fire, which if you've never seen it, it's a classic film about two British Olympic runners from the 1920s. And at, at some point in the film, each one of the runners is asked, why do you run? And one of them, Harold Abrams, explains that when the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. He has to remain alert. He has to perform. Otherwise, he's worthless. But when Eric Lytle, who eventually goes off to be a missionary to China, when he's asked the same question, why do you run? He explains that when I run, I feel God's pleasure. See, that's how we remain vigilant. It's not because our worth and acceptance are dependent on it. They're not. The reason that we run, the reason we remain vigilant is because we have experienced God's love for us. We have have experienced and sensed his pleasure that he has in us. That is the power that woke us up from our sinful slumber and is the power that will keep us awake. See, that's the real reason Eutychus is lucky. It's because he worships a God who came after him, who woke him up. I want you to notice how he did that. He could have just hollered down from heaven, wake up, Eutychus, but he doesn't. He uses Paul, his brother. See, I think think one of the main reasons we struggle to stay vigilant is because we're trying to do so on our own. What we really need to do is be more like the Apostle John. Uh, Eusebius, who is a, a church historian from the fourth century, tells this story about John, which he swears is true, that, that John, when he was uh, later in his life, that he, he met a young man, he leads this young man to the Lord. But John has to keep traveling on, and, and this, this young man is entrusted to the local pastor, but uh, as things would go, 
the young man falls back into a life of crime. And thinking that he's, he's lost, that he's, he's, he's gone, that he sinks deeper and deeper into this life of crime until he becomes like a leader among thieves. And so John eventually comes back to the city and inquires about this young man and finds out what's happened to him. And, and John, distraught, asks for a horse, gets on and rides out to the thief's outpost and gets captured. He's like, take me to your leader. And they do. And they take him to the, the young man who comes out armed to the teeth. And he sees John and he starts running the other way. And John, forgetting his age, chases after him. And he says, why, my son, do you flee from me? Your own father, unarmed, aged. Fear not, my son, you still have hope of life. I will give account to Christ for you. If need be, I will willingly endure your death as the Lord suffered death for us. For you, I will give up my life. Stand, believe, Christ has sent me to you. And the man, overcome by all of this, stops and John shepherds him back to the Lord. See, Providence, if we're going to remain vigilant, we have to be like John. We have to have people who will be on guard for us to slow down, who, who will pursue us when we might begin to drift off to sleep. And we have to be willing to do the same for others. And that, that is costly. But this is how we remain vigilant. We do so together. And so here's the point. Our journey is nowhere near over. I pray that God has been working in you as he has been in me to bridge these gaps in our lives that are holding us back from pursuing his call to be witnesses and ambassadors for him. But friends, there is, there is much bridge work still to be done. And it's work that can only be done with our eyes on Jesus and having fellow believers to spur us on. And so, brothers and sisters, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. With all this in mind, let us consider him who endured from sinners such hostility so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we, uh, Father, we thank you that you are a God who pursues us. You could have left us in our sinful slumber, and yet in your great kindness and love toward us, you chase us down. You wake us up. Father, we confess, I confess, that we are, are prone to, to want to go back to sleep, to disengage from you and what you are calling us to. Father, would you forgive us, forgive our pride in thinking that we are, I really don't need you. And Father, would you give us eyes to see, would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to pursue you as we ought? Would you help us to see your love and, 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 and kindness and provision for us so that we might run with endurance the race that you've set before us. And Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion, would you continue to be among us ministering to your people? We ask this in the name of Jesus.